Alice, good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds and our uh, Chad Endocrinology Mini Fellowship Series. Uh, welcome. I see a tiny little screen in the back of the room here in Auditorium uh, E with, I think, our colleagues in Manchester, Nashua, and Concord. Uh, so welcome uh, to those in the region and others watching on the web. I'm actually surprised from the emails I sometimes get the number of people who watch on the web from outside our region, Maine and, and other parts of the, the, uh, the world. We, um, we gather for the mini fellowship series uh, four to six times a year to hear from our specialists in our specialty sections to talk about common and important conditions uh, to help all of us, but especially those of us in primary care to manage those conditions closer to home and create some standard expectations such that the cases that are more complex and need to transition to our specialists um, <clears throat> are on the same page and doing the same processes. So um, we will get to our mini fellowship series in a brief second. I want to give a couple of uh, reminders and thanks. They were on the screen, but we're getting close to the deadline for all of us, all, all Dartmouth-Hitchcock watchers right now for E-learnings are due in a week from today, so uh, it's a smaller list than past years, but they do take some time, so budget that in if you've not completed it. <clears throat> there is the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Trustees Scholarship. Members of Chad have actually earned this scholarship in the past for either the Master's in Healthcare Delivery Science or the Dartmouth Institute for a Master's Degree. That's due Friday the 2nd. Um, and uh, Holly Gaspar, one of our child life specialists, is currently on that scholarship. So hopefully we can continue that track record. And thanks to everybody who has continued or who, who put up the good fight over many months, reminding our congressional delegations of the importance of CHIP. Um, if you saw in the news on Monday, part of the broker deal to keep the government working was a six-year extension of CHIP which is um, an important success for child health. So um, thanks for your advocacy, and I'm sure we will be coming back to our communities again for more, for more advocacy efforts. So on to today's program. Uh, today we're, we're pleased to welcome to the podium for the first time Dr. Cynthia Meyer-Siefer, uh, who is a member of our section of pediatric endocrinology, uh, received her undergraduate education at the University of Pennsylvania and medical school at Stanford University, where she also started an internship and residency in pediatrics that was completed at Case Western Reserve University, transferring east after a detour through pathology that she told me not to mention. We're, we're, we're fortunate that she found her way back to pediatric endocrinology for fellowship in New Haven at Yale and started her academic career with stints in Providence and Ohio, but the bulk of it was in New Jersey at um, University, of Medicine, University of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey, Rutgers Medical School in New Brunswick, uh, rising to the rank of clinical professor of pediatrics. After a two-year detour out to uh, Portland, we were pleased that she wanted to come back to the East Coast and joined us in 2016 here at Chad um, for pediatric endocrinology based primarily in Manchester and uh, is a clinical associate professor of pediatrics at the Geisel School of Medicine. So polycystic ovarian syndrome in adolescents, uh, an important topic, and, and we probably even talk about all the challenges around that title. So. <laughs> Thanks, Cindy. Welcome. All right. Uh, thank you very much uh, for um, inviting me to speak about polycystic ovary syndrome in adolescents. Polycystic ovary syndrome is a complex, heterogeneous, multi-system disorder of reproductive age women and adolescents. It's primarily characterized by hyperandrogenism and ovulatory dysfunction. It is a self-perpetuating abnormality. Uh, the etiology remains elusive after decades of research, but more and more people are appreciating the long-term health risks associated with polycystic ovary syndrome. The um, diagram to, the, to your right um, is just a depiction of the normal um, endocrine uh, system that drives um, reproductive function, beginning with the hypothalamus and pituitary, 
uh, with the GnRH pulse generator stimulating LH and FSH, um, with the cyclical um, normal secretion of LH and FSH driving normal ovulation, normal uh, secretion of estrogen and progesterone to maintain uh, the normal ovulation and menstruation. I'm going to begin by just the definition of polycystic ovary syndrome, the contemporary definition, and how it's evolved. So in 1990, uh, the NIH consensus was published. This defined polycystic ovary syndrome as hyperandrogenism and oligoanovulation, irregular menstrual periods, essentially. They specified that there needed to be absence of other endocrinopathy, so there needed to be a thorough investigation for other causes of similar symptoms. Thirteen years later, uh, the reproductive endocrinologists in Europe and uh, the United States um, got together in Rotterdam and expanded the diagnostic criteria. Um, they said that polycystic ovary syndrome was now hyperandrogenism, oligoanovulation, but also polycystic ovary morphology as determined on transvaginal ultrasound. Once again, absence of other endocrinopathy. Ten years later, uh, the Endocrine Society uh, published a clinical practice guideline that essentially endorsed the Rotterdam criteria, but had a, um, a, a caveat, which, which included that establishing a diagnosis of PCOS was problematic in adolescence. So why did they say this? Um, the problem is that normal adolescent physiology can mimic the symptoms and criteria of polycystic ovary syndrome as defined in adults. Um, so in the, the endocrine society practice guidelines, there's little extra things about adolescence. And so they stated, once again, that clinical or biochemical hyperandrogenism was part of the criteria, but they... they altered the, the um, symptom of oligomenorrhea um, to, to include an extra description that it had to be two years post-menarche um, because of the, the, the symptoms that can mimic PCOS uh, within two years after menarche. Um, they also eliminated the polycystic ovary morphology as part of the criteria for um, polycystic ovary syndrome in adolescence, uh, once again, because there's so much overlap with normal, um, and also said to exclude other disorders. There's a group of pediatric endocrinologists throughout the world that meet periodically and, and publish long papers that are reviews of polycystic ovary syndrome. And the most recent one um, of the International Consortium of Pediatric Endocrinology um, endorsed um, all of these criteria that were previously published in the Endocrine Society Practice Guideline but emphasized a little bit more that obesity, hyperinsulinemia, and insulin resistance, although strongly associated with polycystic ovary syndrome, are not part of the criteria. So moving on to pathophysiology. Um, the pathophysiology is very complex um, and still poorly understood. Um, there, are there are many... Um, places that you could start to try to understand what the pathophysiology is. Um, it could be neuroendocrine. It could have to do with metabolism and hyperinsulinemia. The ovary could be the primary source. There can be environmental influences. There may be a problem with steroidogenesis. And there may be a, a primary genetic factor. And all of these interact with each other and may not be present in, in every single person. So let's begin at the top, um, neuroendocrine. This was probably the, the, the first place that was um, well studied for polycystic ovary syndrome etiology. Um, when we talk about neuroendocrine, we're talking about an alteration in um, the GnRH pulse generator and in LH and FSH secretion. What and, and these areas also control steroidogenesis, follicle dynamics, and ovulation in the ovary, of course. What we often find um, in polycystic ovary syndrome clinically is an increase in LH, an increase in the LH to FSH ratio, which once again are not um, diagnostic criteria, um, and a relative decrease in FSH. And what this implies biochemically is that there are increased pulses of GnRH that are driving these abnormalities. And the question is, is this a primary problem, a genetic problem, um, or is this 
a problem that has developed due to other uh, biochemical abnormalities, increases in, in androgens, the hyperandrogenemia, or increases in insulin, which we haven't really gotten to yet. And the point is that both androgens and insulin are able to disrupt the central feedback of the estrogen and progesterone from the ovary um, at the pituitary gland, which then perpetuates this elevation in LH and the hyperandrogenism. So what about the disruption at the level of the ovary? Well, what we know is that there's a disruption of a balance um, between antimullerian hormone, AMH, androgens, and FSH. So this antimullerian hormone is the same antimullerian hormone that's responsible for um, normal um, differentiation, sex differentiation in the male fetus. Um, it also has an important function uh, in, in the ovary. So and, um, AMH is made in preantral and small antral follicles um, in, in follicular development in the ovary. And we know that there is a, an interaction between AMH and FSH. This is, I'm looking at this little cartoon up here. So AMH is made in these small, follicle, these small um, follicles. And once the follicle gets to be a certain size, the control of the follicular development after that is dependent on FSH to then take it to where you, you um, have ovulation. And what happens is this, this transition is disrupted. And so there is failure to select a dominant follicle. There's an arrest of multiple small follicles at this level, and it turns out that those small follicles are androgen-making machines. They never get to the point where they can make estrogen, and that's largely because AMH makes aromata inhibits aromatase, which takes androgens to estrogen. Um, so there's excess ovarian androgen and anovulation. So just these, this little cartoon down here kind of depicts a normal ovary going from um, dominant follicle selection, ovulation, and then involution of the corpus luteum cyst, as opposed to um, the arrest of multiple small follicles that gives you the polycystic ovary morphology and biochemistry. There's, um, the possibility exists that there is a primary problem in steroidogenesis, um, such that um, what we're talking about is an intrinsic abnormality um, in either the ovaria theca cells, the ovary theca cells, or the adrenal cortex. Um, the steroidogenesis pathway is shared between the ovary and the adrenal gland, the reticularis and the adrenal gland, and such that um, there's excess um, DHEA and DHEA sulfate from the um, adrenal gland and excess um, testosterone um, from the ovary. Probably the most well-studied um, in recent years is the association of insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia with polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, the, the cartoon over here just is a reminder of the um, biochemistry of insulin-mediated glucose disposal um, uh, due to um, insulin receptor binding. So insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia is common, if not universal, in um, individuals with polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, it is thought that there is an intrinsic defect in insulin sensitivity um, in these individuals, um, even in, in lean individuals with polycystic ovary syndrome, and I'll show you the data in a second with, for that. There is certainly a contribution to overweight and obesity, um, and obesity and overweight are certainly more common in individuals with polycystic ovary syndrome. Uh, there is one school of thought that thinks that there may be um, an early environmental insult that promotes polycystic ovary syndrome and insulin resistance um, later on, um, particularly in individuals who are born with low birth weight and IUGR. There is a well-documented um, insulin resistance of puberty. This has been um, documented in very sophisticated uh, studies um, that are done um, in vivo, but in a very concentrated, in a very um, controlled way, which I'll describe in a second. So we know that this hyperinsulinemia um, will potentiate hyperandrogenism at various levels in um, the reproductive system. So. Um, high androgens serve to um, increase LH at the pituitary level. Um, it increases, which will then increase androgens at the ovary. It also will emphasize the, um, the LH effect at the level of the ovary, prompting more androgens. Um, 
there's also um, an effect of high insulin levels on promoting abnormal steroidogenesis that promotes androgens. And finally, insulin um, will decrease sex hormone binding globulin. So testosterone circulates um, in the periphery bound to sex hormone binding globulin. And if you decrease sex hormone binding globulin, you allow for increased free hormone, which then increases, increases the clinical effects of testosterone. So there is no good clinical way of measuring insulin resistance. I'll just put that out there. Um, and but, so the only really good way of measuring insulin resistance is using um, what's called a hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp. And this is not something that you can do in the comfort of your own clinical laboratory. Um, so what happens is, um, and so this, this researcher many years ago um, set out to determine whether there was insulin resistance that was associated with polycystic ovary syndrome, um, whether or not there was obesity as well. So what she did was she um, looked at obese and non-obese PCOS women, obese and non-obese controls, age and weight matched, and put them through this hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp. So what happens is you, you infuse enough insulin, very high levels of insulin, such that you shut off, that lower slide is shutting off a person's hepatic, own hepatic glucose production. And then you infuse enough glucose to keep the glucose up at a defined level. And the idea is that the more glucose you have to infuse, the more sensitive you are to insulin, the, more, the faster you're putting that insulin, that glucose into the cells. And what they found was, looking at this top slide, the, the most sensitive women were the lean uh, non-PCOS women, followed by the lean PCOS women, followed by obese non-PCOS women, and the most insulin resistant were women with PCOS and obesity. So obesity and PCOS independently decrease insulin sensitivity and increase insulin resistance. And these are the studies that um, define that principle. So what about obesity? How much does it matter? Well, um, these, study, th these um, researchers did a systematic review specifically designed to look at the prevalence of obesity um, around the world and also how much the, how, what was the increased risk of obesity if you had PCOS. So what they found was that just looking at um, a BMI greater than 30, they looked at lots and lots of studies, 106, 106 studies for the, the systematic review and 35 for their meta-analysis and found that if you had a BMI greater than 30, um, that 12.5 to 100% of women would have PCOS. And if they pooled it, it was about 50%. And this is a fairly reproducible st statistic by, by other studies. And then there was definitely um, an increased risk, um, a risk ratio of 2.77 um, for having obesity if you had PCOS versus not um, for a BMI over 30. So an increased risk of obesity um, for if you had PCOS and about a 50% prevalence. This study um, is, was done in um, using data from the electronic health record, a cross-sectional study using the electronic health record from Kaiser Permanente in Southern California, so 3.4 million people. Um, this, this study gave me hope that, there's, that there may be some purpose to the time that I spend with um, the electronic health record. <laughs> and, and so they looked at 137,000 girls between the ages of 15 and 19, and they, they wanted to determine PCOS prevalence. That's, that's what they did. So they, they literally used diagnostic codes for both PCOS and um, other um, codes such as irregular menses or hyperandrogenism and looked at girls who had been previously diagnosed with PCOS, but also they increased the numbers by reviewing the charts and um, making the diagnosis of PCOS just based on their chart review as well, um, if, they, if they met the NIH criteria, that hyperandrogenism and oligoanovulation that I mentioned in the beginning of the talk. And what they found was that the prevalence in, in 137,000 girls age 15 to 19 was about a little over 1%, and that the prevalence also increased by weight. So there's, there's, uh, there's clearly an effect of weight um, if you um, have a, had a BMI that was in the normal range, um, your, your, um, the prevalence was about a half a percent, and it went up 
um, to the point where if you um, had a very high BMI, um, that your the, the prevalence was up to um, five and a half percent. So um, moving on to other aspects of pathophysiology, um, what about genetics? Well, twin family studies are done to assess heritability and distinguish genetic versus environmental um, influence on phenotype, this phenotype being polycystic ovary syndrome. So this was a Dutch study um, done, uh, oops, done about 10 years ago. And uh, they looked at monozygotic twins, girls, of course, women, um, dizygotic twins and sisters. So the monozygotic twins have 100% genetic um, similarity versus 50%. And, and they looked to see what the correlation between individuals um, were with, in terms of polycystic ovary syndrome. And they found that the correlation, these correlations are 0 0.67, 0 0.78, as opposed to um, 0 0.44, 0 0.25, much higher correlation for polycystic ovary syndrome in the monozygotic twins compared to the dizygotic twins and sisters. And this supported the search for susceptibility genes. So these types of genetic studies, genome-wide association studies, are, are, are in their infancy, I would say. There's a, a tremendous amount of interest. Um, but the first study um, looking for um, SNPs associated with PCOS were published in 2011, so really not that long ago. And the first study was um, this study in 2011, um, looking at Chinese women, and found um, several loci that were related to steroid hormone regulation and insulin signaling. Subsequent studies have um, revealed um, uh, possible loci in the region of the FSH beta gene and in um, genes that encode um, proteins involved in steroidogenesis in, in, in the ovary. So I'm, um, I'm going to move on now to more about diagnostic criteria. Um, that's, that's the review of uh, the pathophysiology. Um, so going back to the, the earlier definition of polycystic ovary syndrome, um, the, first, the first criteria is um, irregular menses and, and um, ovulation dysfunction. Um, so by the third year after menarche, somewhere between 60 and 80% of cycles are between 21 and 34 days. Even up to 42 days um, is, is considered normal. Um, but it's similar to adults. So um, once it's two, you're two years post-menarche, oligomenorrhea is considered cycles that are longer than 45 days. Um, another criteria that can go along with ovulation, dis, ovulatory dysfunction um, is absence of menarche for 90 days. That's secondary amenorrhea. Um, Primary, the person may present with primary amenorrhea, and this is considered lack of, a, of the first menstrual period at least three years post-thelarchy and with a sexual maturity rating, a tanner stage of um, a five, four to five at least. Um, and some adolescents with polycystic ovary syndrome will, will present with dysfunctional uterine bleeding. What about hyperandrogenism? Well, hyperandrogenism can be either biochemical or clinical. Um, we define biochemical hyperandrogenism as an elevation in free and total testosterone um, or, and or um, DHEA sulfate. So about 20 to 30% of um, girls and women with polycystic ovary syndrome will have an elevation in um, the, an the adrenal androgen DHEA sulfate. Um, testosterone, of course, um, is from the ovary. It's very important that people have faith in the assay that they're using. Um, androgens are um, notoriously um, tricky um, in terms of assays. So the, the contemporary way of measuring androgens is through liquid chromatography, um, tandem mass, mass spectroscopy. Um, so you should be looking for accurate assays in, in interpretation of the, of the um, levels of testosterone and DHEA sulfate. And it's important to remember also that um, this biochemical hyperandrogenism really can't be con considered abnormal until, once again, two years post-menarche because there is a physiologic elevation in uh, testosterone in the first two years after menarche. What about clinical hyperandrogenism? Um, 
although acne and um, androgenic alopecia are considered um, adequate criteria in adults, they're not considered um, adequate in teenagers. Um, the, alopecia, alope the alopecia hasn't been studied well in teenagers, and uh, mild acne is just too common. But moderate or severe inflammatory acne may be associated with a true um, hyperandrogenemia and can be used as a criteria, um, a clinical criteria for polycystic ovary syndrome. Hirsutism, um, which refers to excess coarse terminal hair in a male distribution, um, is really the, the, the best standard to judge um, clinical hyperandrogenism in polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, the standard way of assessing um, hirsutism is the Fermin-Galway score. Um, this was published in 1961. It's um, used in all the studies um, that are done for in polycystic ovary syndrome um, to try to standardize things as best as possible. There's debate about whether it's um, useful um, across um, age and ethnicity. Um, the, the scoring system consists of these areas, and you assign a number one through four to um, your physical finding. And if the score um, is greater than eight, um, that is consistent with clinical hirsutism. Although polycystic ovary morphology is not a diagnostic criteria in adults, I mean in, in adolescents, excuse me, um, I decided that I would at least um, introduce um, what it is. Um, so according to the Rotterdam criteria, which in um, 2003 included this as part of their diagnostic criteria in adults. Um, it's defined as greater than 12 follicles of 2 to 9 millimeters, um, or, so they're small. That's the, that's the point. They're not big follicles. They're by, by definition small. Um, once again, these are the, those small antral and preantral follicles that don't go on to um, ovulation. Um, or an ovarian volume greater than 10 mLs, which is big. Um, in at least one ovary, and this is defined by transvaginal <laughs> ultrasound. The limitations in adolescence. We don't really do transvaginal ultrasound. We do transabdominal ultrasound. And that this morphology in the ovary, this polycystic ovary morphology, may be normal in adolescence, even, even past uh, two years past menarche. So one study showed 35% of asymptomatic girls, girls who are menstruating regularly, two years post-menarche can have um, this finding on, on ultrasound. So really not useful to distinguish polycystic ovary syndrome. There's been increased interest um, in trying to find a biomarker for polycystic ovary syndrome, to diagnose polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, I think for obvious reasons, it's, it's certainly not straightforward. And what has risen to the top of potential biomarkers is, um, once again, antimullerian hormone, which we talked about a little bit on, in the beginning of the talk, which is made in the um, preantral and small antral follicles. Um, so it, AMH is particularly made in the granulosa cells of these small follicles. Androgens are made in the theca cells. Um, and it turns out that serum levels correlate with the number of small antral follicles, these small these two to five millimeter follicles, if you compare um, the AMH level um, to these follicles on transvaginal ultrasound in adults. In addition, AMH is clearly elevated in women with polycystic ovary syndrome, and it's been studied to the extent that um, the AMH that is, sec is secreted from these small follicles in women who have polycystic ovary syndrome is greater than, a similar, than similar follicles in women who don't have polycystic ovary syndrome. So there's something inherently different about these, um, these small follicles in women with PCOS. However, um, we still question whether it's going to be useful in adolescence um, because AMH is elevated in non-hyperandrogenic girls with regular menses and that polycystic ovary morphology that I showed you on the last slide. So it just seems to be right now mimicking um, the, the limitations of the um, morphology on ultrasound. But there's still interest. So um, this is a study. Um, and I'm sorry, in the back, I know that it's hard to read the slide, so I'll point out the, um, the abnormalities um, that I've highlighted. So um, 
these researchers um, looked at 31 individuals. They, there were um, about 15 girls with polycystic ovary syndrome that they recruited and um, compared them with controls. Um, and they, were, they set out to see if they could determine a difference in polycystic ovary, in, in anti-mullerian hormone level in girls with polycystic ovary syndrome versus controls. So they had um, 15 with polycystic ovary syndrome, 16 controls. And this is the level at AMH here, 4.4, um, um, with a very large standard deviation um, in the polycystic ovary syndrome girls um, versus controls 2.4. Um, that's the mean. Um, and, and just the, this is the Ferriman-Galloway score. I'm sorry, this is the testosterone, which is um, 67 versus 29 in controls, and the Ferriman-Galloway score, um, which is... 21 versus um, 6 in the, um, in the controls. So just to show you the difference in the populations. They then, try, I, I, but I, they then tried to pick a level that would distinguish between um, girls with polycystic ovary syndrome and, and normal. And as you can see, um, this was not very successful. There's tremendous overlap in the AMH levels in the girls with polycystic ovary syndrome and the controls. So um, the story is still unfolding. So, once again, um, just to emphasize that insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, obesity, and increased LH to FSH, FSH ratio are not part of the diagnostic criteria for polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, as endocrinologists, um, we, um, we see a, a lot of kids, young, early teenagers that might be... Um, sent over because they have um, obesity and some acanthosis nigricans, and they're only 11, and they haven't had their period for six months, and um, their parents have already been told that they probably have polycystic ovary syndrome. So that's my, kind of my point in, in showing this slide. It, it really is, is not a good idea to, to, um, to start to label someone with that, with that diagnosis in that setting. So um, in all of the different um, criteria for polycystic ovary syndrome, the last thing is exclude other diagnoses. So the, there are other causes for oligoamenorrhea, for hirsutism, and, and the, they in particular include um, these um, disorders. So um, non-classic congenital adrenal hyperplasia, um, androgen-secreting tumors, hyperprolactinemia, thyroid dysfunction, Cushing syndrome, celiac disease, um, and of course, pregnancy. The evaluation um, is, of course, going to include a thorough um, history and physical examination. Um, you're going to be very interested in family history, um, PCOS, uh, metabolic uh, syndrome type features, pubertal timing, we were, in terms of making the diagnosis, has it been two years since menarche? What um, uh, the menstrual uh, cycles are like now? Assessment of metabolic features, including um, body mass index, blood pressure. Waist, I put waist circumference up here because it was recommended um, by the recent guidelines from the Endocrine Society. Um, because it, it better represents um, the obesity that's associated with the metabolic syndrome than BMI does. Um, and then, of course, characterizing the features of hyperandrogenism and hyperinsulinemia. So um, hyperandrogenism is um, depicted in this photo. And hyperinsulinemia, I think everybody is familiar with the physical finding of um, acanthosis nigricans, which is a clinical representation of, of high insulin levels. In terms of laboratory testing, um, free and total testosterone is probably the uh, most important um, laboratory test to get. But remember that in, in some individuals, there will be an elevation in DHEA sulfate and not necessarily in free and total testosterone. I recommend getting the free testosterone for the reasons that I alluded to earlier, that high androgen levels and hyperinsulinemia can decrease sex hormone binding globulin. So a free testosterone may be normal, but because of the decrease in um, sex hormone binding globulin, the free, free testosterone may be elevated. 
The 17-hydroxyprogesterone is to rule out the most common cause of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, 21-hydroxylase deficiency. Um, prolactin, um, HCG. I have LH and FSH here, even though I just finished saying that um, it, the LH to FSH ratio is not part of the diagnosis of polycystic ovary syndrome. But remember, we're, we're also ruling out other reasons for oligomenorrhea. And so um, we want to know that um, there isn't um, primary ovarian insufficiency, for example. Thyroid, um, screening tests for celiac disease. And just to mention, if you really are concerned about Cushing syndrome in an individual that um, may have polycystic ovary syndrome, um, the, it, it's, it's not necessary to order um, an AM cortisol. That's not going to distinguish that diagnosis for you. If you really are concerned, um, you need to order a 24-hour urinary free cortisol. In terms of comorbidity, let's say you get to the point where, yes, we're convinced that this person has polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, we'll be talking a little bit more about the um, association with um, metabolic comorbidities, um, including um, obesity, high blood pressure, lipid, dis lipid disorders, and, and glucose intolerance. So I put an A1C here because it's... It, if it's high, you don't really have to go any further. You know you have somebody with diabetes. But if it's normal, you're, you're not done trying to figure out what the glucose tolerance is of, of the individual. Um, lipid profile. Um, I usually like to do a, a comprehensive metabolic panel. It's not necessarily recommended by standard bodies, but I'm, I'm editorializing a little bit. Um, what is becoming clear and necessary, and not just my opinion, is um, that in girls with polycystic ovary syndrome who are overweight or obese, that we really need to start doing glucose tolerance tests and, and not just a, a hemoglobin A1C and certainly not just a fasting glucose. And I'll show you that for that in a minute. I rarely do a, a pelvic ultrasound in these individuals. Um, I'll, I'll do one if, if I have somebody with primary amenorrhea um, or dysfunctional uterine bleeding or if the testosterone is extremely elevated and I'm concerned about a tumor. So um, this study was a this is this is addressing this issue of associated metabolic risk in polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, so this was a retrospective chart review of patients younger than 20 years old that presented to a reproductive endocrinology practice um, over a couple of years, and they they came in saying, "Do I have PCOS?" And so they diagnosed PCOS based on other criteria that I hadn't told you about before called the Androgen Excess Polycystic Ovarian Society. Um, this society essentially, it's, it's very similar to the Rotterdam criteria. Um, they emphasize, uh, as might be assumed from their name, that the androgen excess is the, is the primary problem in, in polycystic ovary syndrome and then go from there. But, um, and they, they qualified it as two years post-menarche. And what they found, so this is demographic information for adolescents with and without polycystic ovary syndrome by these criteria. And what they found is that in the adolescents who they diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome, and there's about 140 versus 50, um, they found a much higher um, family history of not only polycystic ovary syndrome, but other metabolic disorders, high, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, and lipid disorders. Then moving to this next table, which is metabolic risk factors in adolescents with and without polycystic ovary syndrome. So just comparing the means between the two groups, um, they found that um, there was a much, um, there was a higher, not much higher, but higher systo uh, systolic blood pressure compared to non-PCOS individuals, but also a much higher body mass index, 28.5 versus 24. And then finally, they assessed the prevalence of metabolic syndrome and its individual components in adolescents with and without polycystic ovary syndrome. And just to draw your attention to the bottom line, which is a much higher um, prevalence of polycystic ovary syndrome, 10% um, versus 2% um, in individuals with polycystic ovary syndrome versus without. So underscoring the association of metabolic risk and polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, this is a little clearer, fortunately. Um, another retrospective chart review done over a longer period of time, they really wanted to try in this study to have a lot of patients. And so they looked at patients younger than 18 that presented to a pediatric gynecology practice 
once again for evaluation of PCOS, and they define PCOS in this study as meeting the NIH criteria. Um, they diagnosed 163 people um, of, of 360 with polycystic ovary syndrome, and 146 of them had had, had oral glucose tolerance tests as part of their evaluation. And what they did was they defined, they, they divided up these groups into obese versus non-obese, um, and found that in the obese group, um, 20 out of 80 um, had an abnormal glucose tolerance test. So, um, and this was at the two-hour um, mark, um, while six of non-obese um, had an abnormal glucose tolerance test. But then they decided to just to, to pool the obese and non-obese, and what you see is that 26 out of overweight and obese, um, I'm sorry, they didn't, they pulled overweight and obese. So this, this is obese versus non-obese. This is overweight and obese versus non-obese. And you can see that the abnormal glucose tolerance test at two hours, um, the, the glucose level um, two hours after 75 grams of glucola, um, was abnormal in 26 out of 91. And there were no abnormalities in the non-obese um, uh, group. So this study, I think, suggests that we should be doing glucose tolerance tests um, in all girls with polycystic ovary syndrome who are overweight or obese. Um, only two of the girls um, met the criteria for diabetes. Um, the others had impaired glucose tolerance. And um, in two of the girls who were diagnosed with impaired glucose tolerance, they actually had fasting glucoses that were abnormal as well, which is a, a very small number compared to the number that had abnormal glucoses at two hours. So what about treatment um, in these girls, uh, given all this clear information? So treatment has to be um, individualized. Um, there are short-term goals that we have for polycystic ovary syndrome, um, establishing regular menses, um, decreasing the symptoms of the hyperandrogenism, and also um, treating any identified comorbidities. Um, the impair, impaired glucose tolerance, other features of the metabolic syndrome. Long-term goals are going to be to improve fertility. Um, fertility is certainly impaired when you don't ovulate. And, um, and to decrease the risk long-term um, for these disorders if they haven't yet appeared. So the cornerstone of treatment for polycystic ovary syndrome remains weight loss, exercise, and behavioral intervention to um, hope to help those interventions be successful. Um, Pharmaceutical-wise, oral contraceptives, insulin sensitizing agents, particularly metformin, and antiandrogens, um, particularly spironolactone. Um, topical hair removal tends to be a part of this management as well. So many studies have shown the effectiveness of lifestyle intervention in polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, this is just one example in, in uh, teenagers. So this was a German study. This started out with 217 girls presenting to an obesity program um, in Germany. Um, and they were between 12 and 17 years old. Um, and all 217 were offered the opportunity to participate in this obesity program. 127 started, it was a year-long program, 59 completed it, and 26 were able to reduce their BMI on more than 0.2 standard deviation. And this is what they found. I know that these slides are very difficult to see. I live and learn. So, um, so this is the group that um, had successful weight loss, and this is the group that did not lose weight. And what I'll point out to you is that when they looked at um, components of the polycystic ovary syndrome, so this is hormone levels, menstrual cyclicity, um, they found that there was no difference before and after in the girls who did not lose weight. In the girls who did lose weight, um, they improved many features, and I've highlighted here, this is free testosterone um, that significantly decreased in the girls with um, who had lost some weight, and it was, a, it was an average of about four kilos that they lost over the year. Um, and um, in terms of menstrual cycles, 
69% had um, oligoanovulation to begin with, and after a year, um, only 27% um, continued to have irregular periods. They also looked at some metabolic features, um, and so the, the top line just shows that the, um, the, the girls who did not lose weight actually had a significant weight gain over the year. Um, the girls who did lose weight um, sig had a significant drop in weight. In, in weight. Their two-hour um, glucose uh, was 130 at the beginning, which is normal, but, um, but that's what it was, and it dropped to 108 after a year. And then finally, um, the... Um, prevalence of the metabolic syndrome in these girls um, went from um, about 35 to 4%. <laughs> so it, it does work. It's just very difficult, as we all know. So um, moving on to our, our pharmaceutical options, which is generally where we have to go. Um, the mainstay of treatment in polycystic ovary syndrome for decades, really, has been um, oral contraceptive agents. Um, these are combinations of a progesterone component, usually with ethanolestradiol. Um, and the way they work is that estrogen increases sex hormone binding globulin, so it um, will decrease um, free testosterone availability. Um, and it also decreases LH, so you drop the um, amount of androgen that's being made in the ovary. Um, the progesterone um, will suppress the endometrium and allow withdrawal bleeding, so um, you have an improvement in your hyperandrogenism and regular menses. There are no um, randomized control trials for one um, formulation of birth control versus another, one, any of these pills, so I can't really tell you that one works better than any other to help these symptoms. Um, but all of them... Um, can increase insulin resistance and dyslipidemia, which these individuals are at risk for to begin with. Um, and there is a low risk in teenagers for thromboembolism, but it's not zero. So given um, the background of hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance in these individuals, there um, arose interest in can we treat these, these um, patients with, with metformin, with an insulin sensitizing agent. So metformin is, is approved for type 2 diabetes in children over the age of 10, but it, ha it has not been approved for polycystic ovary syndrome per se. Um, what, what metformin does is it, it decreases hepatic gluconeogenesis and increases the uptake of glucose in the periphery in muscle and fat, resulting in decreased insulin secretion. So it lowers your, your insulin levels. It makes you more sensitive, so you make less insulin. Um, by decreasing your insulin, this decreases um, androgen production at the level of the uh, um, ovary. Both There's thought to be an actual direct effect at the ovary by the metformin in addition to the effect of decreasing insulin, which, as I mentioned earlier, insulin will increase androgens by effects at the pituitary gland and at the ovary and probably steroidogenesis as well. So... This is an early study done in 2001 to try to look at how well metformin would work in adolescence. And this was just an observational study. Um, the interesting thing was that it was lean adolescents. What do we do with the patients who are lean and have polycystic ovary syndrome? Um, we can't ask them to lose weight. Um, so in, in these individuals um, with polycystic ovary syndrome by NIH criteria treated with metformin, um, after, this study only went for six months, excuse me, um, looking at just, um, I'll draw your attention to a couple of key features here. The Ferriman-Galloway score, um, normal, less than 8, went from 15 to 11 over six months, um, treated with metformin, and the dose was a little over 1,000, was about 1,200 milligrams, which is a lowish dose. Um, the menstrual cyclicity um, increased from um, 13 out of the 18 girls having irregular periods to none having irregular periods. And um, the testosterone level dropped from 108 to 67. So pretty promising data, but observational. These uh, uh, researchers tried to look at um, lifestyle plus metformin versus lifestyle plus placebo. Their goal was actually to recruit 50 patients into each arm of the study and got tired of trying to recruit and stopped at 22 total. <laughs> um, BMI was greater than 27. They used the Rotterdam criteria to um, 
study um, to, to define polycystic ovary syndrome and treated them for six months. Um, what they found was a difference in testosterone and acne, um, not really any difference over six months um, between these two groups um, in um, improving menstrual cycles. Um, and this study was, um, there's been lots of meta-analyses because these, these studies have such small numbers. And, and so this was included in a meta-analysis later. Um, so this was in 2011. In 2015, this was included in a meta-analysis that had five, 12 randomized control trials. And it, in, with larger numbers, there does seem to be a benefit um, of lifestyle and metformin over just lifestyle in uh, BMI and menses. But all of these studies are limited by um, sample size, bias, um, and short duration, usually um, six months, a year at most. So this study looked at metformin versus um, oral contraceptive agents. Um, it was a, they, they um, tried to do um, a meta-analysis, found four studies that fit their criteria with 170 adolescents, and showed similar benefits between metformin and oral contraceptive agents on hirsutism, um, lipid levels. Metformin seemed to have a bigger effect on body mass index, and the oral contraceptive agents seemed to uh, improve um, menses and acne more. Um, once again, always, always commenting on low-quality evidence and small sample sizes. Um, finally, um, what about the use of antiandrogens? So spironolactone is widely used um, in, in the United States. Um, it has a very good safety profile. Um, this study looked at um, 169 adolescents and young women um, with polycystic ovary syndrome um, and treated them with metformin, spironolactone, or the two in combination um, for six months. They all had improvement in uh, menses, in um, hyperandrogenism, but there seemed to be a little bit of a, of a greater improvement with the two medicines used together compared to alone. Um, there aren't that many studies in adolescents using combinations of these medications. However, um, this is not a combination that I would ever recommend um, that any of us use because there is um, teratogenic risk of spironolactone. There can be abnormal development of the male fetus um, if, um, it, 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 during, if exposed during pregnancy. So I personally will never use spironolactone without an oral contraceptive agent. So I, I decided just to try to put some of this information together by some sample patients that, and this is, this is really how more my, my bias than, than anything that I, that, taking all the information that I've just presented together, this is how I conclude what I should do in, in, in this, these two sample patients that I'll show you. So let's say I have a 13-year-old, uh, menarche at 11, menses every three to four months, um, BMI over the 97th centile, mild acne, so not a criteria. The testosterone is normal, but the free testosterone is elevated, um, has impaired glucose tolerance on a two-hour glucose tolerance test. So anything over 140 at two hours is considered impaired glucose tolerance. If it goes up to, up to 200, then it's diabetes. So this is a person that I would certainly try to treat with lifestyle intervention as my primary goal. Um, but it's also someone that I would have a very low threshold to add metformin to. I'm not as concerned with um, her hyperandrogenic features, so I'm not pushed to do a birth control pill in her. And um, I'm really more concerned about her uh, metabolic risk. Um, and also, I would caution in young adolescents um, using birth control pills if you're not absolutely sure that their growth is finished. Um, case two, a 16-year-old, uh, menarche at age 12. Um, menses were initially regular. Now she has secondary amenorrhea, hasn't had a period in six months. Um, BMI 35, normal glucose tolerance. Um, her Thurman Galway score is 12, um, so it's greater than eight. Um, she has a pretty... Um, pretty clear cl clinical hyperandrogenism. Um, she has an elevated free testosterone and normal lipids. Of course, lifestyle intervention for, um, because we know it works if, if you can stick with it. But this is the kind of person that I would use an, an OCP on right away to help her hyperandrogenism um, more effectively. And if, if the OCP didn't work 
well alone, I would um, have, once again, a low threshold to add spironolactone. Um, so polycystic ovary syndrome in adolescence includes hyperandrogenism and ovulation at least two years after menarche um, and excludes polycystic ovary morphology, insulin resistance, obesity. Um, once you have made the diagnosis, you really be, need to be cognizant of associated metabolic risks, um, and the treatment is individualized, um, incorporates lifestyle intervention um, with pharmaceuticals, and, and I really try to focus on what the primary concerns of the, the patient are. Thank you. <laughs> Question. Given, <laughs> given what adolescents may find about infertility online with PCOS, what's your guidance for them about their risk of pregnancy? Um, right. So uh, it's, it's, it's a leading question. No, it's, it's, a, it's a, it, just because you are not having periods regularly and you have polycystic ovary syndrome doesn't mean you can't get pregnant and you need to use protection. Yes. <laughs> Should I follow that up? Thank you, Dr. Dr. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Kathy Shufkin, I'm one of the. Um, general pediatricians, and I do a lot of adolescent reproductive health. And so we do a lot of um, progesterone-only LARCs. So we do a lot of Nexplanons in our clinic, and we do a lot of, um, we refer kids who want them to the, for an IUD. Um, I have struggled with several of the patients who have PCOS. I strongly encourage the LARC to prevent pregnancy, as Dr. Lau was suggesting, but have struggled then with some of the, they don't have estrogen with their LARCs, mm -hmm. and struggled with some of the complications with PCOS. And I'm wondering if you have recommendations for those kids. <sighs> so girl, girls who you're providing contraception for with progesterone only, and you're concerned about estrogen deficiency. Right, because they have PCOS. And again, just because you have PCOS doesn't mean you can't get pregnant. Right. So I still do the LARC and, for them. And it's also, it's not really clear in PCOS whether they're estrogen deficient. I came, I came across that, that literature. So you know, usually if you give them Provera, they're, they're, they're going to have a, um, a withdrawal bleed. So that's probably the best test for estrogen sufficiency. So I think it's going to come back to, and I, I don't have data to back this up, but, but just in answer to your question, my, my, my first response is to make sure that there you have adequate vitamin D and calcium, right? Because our biggest concern is going to, going to be um, bone mineral health, right? Do you, ha do you have any other? Yeah, but again, you're not, they're not typically estrogen deficient, and they, they are usually normal weighted, so that's probably you know, an overstated risk. I'm more concerned that you're not addressing the underlying pathophysiology by increasing your sex hormone binding block if you don't have estrogen. And can you convince some of them to switch to OCPs? Ah, okay. And would you want to, given the risk of pregnancy? I would. If they're taking it in compliant fashion, there's not suggestion that the LARC is more effective if it's being taken regularly. If. And it helps, and it helps, <laughs> and it helps with their hersitism and their other concerns. That's true. Can't you just do both? So we had, I posted it to the adolescent health listserv probably about two years ago, and the, the, the adolescent folks came down in both directions. Some people said do both, mm -hmm. give them a little bit of estrogen. Some people said don't worry about it, just worry about the metabolic syndrome component of it and deal with that separately. Mm -hmm. um, but it came down, I, I would say, 50-50. So it sounds like... With everything that I'm hearing, is it this might be a final common pathway of many disorders, given that we can't really figure out what causes it. Probably lots of things do. Yes. Which is why you might be seeing different manifestations. Um, if the Germans can't lose weight in an organized fashion. <laughs> right. No, I, I found it's amazingly similar, um, the international experience compared to us. But I'm wondering about um, contraindications to Accutane. It sounds like maybe acne is not the biggest part of this, but I'm going to guess adolescent girls who come in, it's the hair and the acne that's going to bother them a yes. lot more than I might not be able to have a baby. And, mm. They're concerned, in, in my experience, they're concerned about all of it, but you're right. It, the, the, the fertility aspect is their most, in someone who has significant hair stitches, and that's clearly going to be their most, their, their biggest concern. And is Accutane okay in them, or do you not find this, their acne is usually not that severe? The, what's, the way I would answer that is that the, the, to use acne as a diagnostic criteria for um, polycystic ovary syndrome, they essentially have to have acne that would require acne, Accutane to treat it. So 
if that's because mild acne is just too common to be considered a diagnostic criteria. I'm not aware of and I'm not aware of contraindications. No, there's no contraindication. Yeah. You just want so I see our friends in Manchester National where are about to cut off. And I hope you emailed your questions at this point over at nine o'clock. So um, thanks. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.